We're going to turn this morning uh, to our uh, reading for today, Acts, the book of Acts, and uh, we're in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, but before we go into chapter 5, we're going to actually just pick up the context in uh, verse 32 of uh, chapter 4, and then read into chapter 5. So let's read together. Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. <clears throat> but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought, it only, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. <clears throat> After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and led them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And we praise God for his word. Let's pray together as we come to this passage of Scripture and ask the Lord's help as we study it together. <clears throat> Gracious Father, we acknowledge that there are many things in your word that we don't fully understand. 
And there are many things which we hold on to by faith because we know that you are a true God and you speak truth to us. Lord, as we come to this passage this morning, we ask our Father that you will speak into our hearts. We pray for those who are unsaved, that they may heed the warnings that are so clearly here in this story. <clears throat> we pray for those who are your children, those of us who profess to love you, that, Lord, we will be genuine and wholehearted in our commitment to you. And so we pray for your help now, Lord, and ask that you will teach us important, valuable lessons from this passage of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, what a fascinating glimpse we get into the life and the witness of the infant church here uh, in this passage which we have read together. As the apostles and the believers continue to speak the word with boldness, as chapter 4 verse 31 tells us, more and more people were being drawn to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and into the care and love of a new community, uh, a community of people who loved the Lord, who were the family of God, and uh, who were infused, if you like, with that love uh, of which Ali spoke this morning to the boys and girls. We, uh, we see the description of the church family there, and it was a far cry from what was common uh, in the Roman world, in the Roman-occupied world. It was, it was a far cry from the hardness and the cruelty which was so evident in that world. Might was right as far as the Romans were concerned. And this picture here of a, of a, a family of caring uh, uh, men and women looking after each other's needs was stood in so much contrast, really, to much that was around. And the reason, of course, the explanation was, as we've said already, the love of Christ <clears throat> poured into the hearts of believers. And that worked itself out in very practical and touching ways as God's people ministered to one another's needs. And of course, don't we desire that in our own fellowship? <clears throat> we desire to see the love of Christ filling our own hearts so that we will express ourselves in loving concern and care for those around us. But what struck me in, in reading this again was that we have here the values of the kingdom of God uh, contrasted with the values of the world. We see the values of the kingdom of God displacing the values of this world in these people. Because we read, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Now, I want you to notice something. It does still talk about belonging. A couple of times in the passage, it talks about that. It talks about Ananias uh, owning the field that he sold. So, so the, there was still the concept of belonging. But the things that belonged were handled in such a way and treated in such a way as they were made available to anyone in need. And so we read in verse 34 that there was not a needy person among them. For the proceeds of the sale of goods by those with plenty 
were brought along and they were laid at the apostles' feet and we're told it was distributed to each as any had need. And so there was a real realignment here in, in their sense of values amongst the believers. And I think that's a challenge for us living today in what is a very much a materialistic and, and, a, and a, a goods-grabbing world, that, we, that our values ought to stand in contrast to the world, that our attitudes ought to be different, that our sense of value, of true value, should be radically different, and so radically different that, the, that we willingly and spontaneously relinquish those things, a worldly value, for the blessing of the care of those around us. Now, I know that we do that uh, through our offerings to Baptist missions and other missions and uh, in our care for each other. And indeed, many of you may be involved uh, in, in caring, uh, if you like, secretly or, or without others seeing for folk who are in need. But this was it flowed from a realignment, a readjustment of values. If we put our highest values on the things of this world, then we're going to gather them to ourselves. But if we put our truest value, our highest value on the things of eternity, on spiritual treasures, then we will hold the things of this world much more loosely. And we will be much more willing to share and to care for others. Now, I want you to notice what is very important, that this commonality, if you like, this common life, was not the result of an apostolic command. It was not something that was imposed upon uh, the believers, but it flowed out the, the great grace that was upon them. And that's made very clear, really, in the passage. The believers lived out their uh, testimony to the life-saving power of the gospel of the risen Christ, and it was that which gave them this love and this care for each other and this desire, if you like, to share their goods. What must it have been like to have been part of that company of believers committed to Jesus and deeply devoted to one another and concerned for one another's welfare. And I'm sure that in our heart of hearts, this is what we desire in our own fellowship, in our own spiritual family here. <clears throat> now, the Holy Spirit then, through Luke, he directs our attention to one man, to this man, Joseph, <clears throat> who was nicknamed Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And his generous action, we're told that he had a field that belonged to him, uh, there's that word again. And he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. But the thing is that this was not a solitary act. Because if you look a little, if you look a little earlier in that passage, we're told in verse 34, as many as were owners of land and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. So there was, his action, if you like, was in harmony with, the, with others in the company of believers. <clears throat> and uh, then we come to this but at the beginning of chapter 5. Uh, Luke sets before us the, the 
the life of the early church, the way in which they went about their business, their love, and their care for each other. And he picks this particular example of Barnabas and his generosity, and he brings it before us. And then he writes, but. And we read then of Ananias and Sapphira, a very different situation. I feel, again, that it's a mark of the genuineness of the Scriptures that the stories are told, if you like, warts and all. The picture that's painted is not all bright sunshine. Everything's nice and rosy and nothing goes wrong. But when something is wrong, when there is something uh, 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 faulty, something at odds, then the Holy Spirit brings that to the surface. And that's what happens here. We see that even from its infancy, the church of Jesus Christ, which had been attacked constantly from outside by uh, the, the Jews and Jewish zealots and so forth, the object of attack from Satan from outside, but also it's the object of attack from Satan from the inside, much more subtle, and perhaps we might say much more deadly. So what Satan fails to do by opposition and persecution, he attempts by infiltration. And there are many stories uh, during the communist era in uh, Eastern Europe, stories that I've heard from the men who were involved, where they were, the most serious opposition came not from the Securitate, not from the secret police outside, but from the fact that there were those who infiltrated the fellowship and were able to do damage from the inside. And I think there are lessons there for us both as individuals and as a family of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's think about Joseph Barnabas for a start. He was a Cypriot by birth, a former Levite, in other words, a, an expert in the Mosaic law, and he had been one for Christ. He was evidently a wealthy man. He was a cousin of Mark, or perhaps an uncle of Mark, we're not quite sure, and therefore he was related to Mary, um, the mother of Mark, and you can read that in Acts chapter 12 and verse 12. And it was Mary's home in whom the believers met to pray that time when Peter was imprisoned. And in coming to Christ, Joseph, or Barnabas, became part of a loving, caring community whose hearts were filled with love for their fellow believers. And it was in this context that this son of encouragement, what a wonderful nickname, he sold some land and he brought the proceeds to the apostles to relieve the needs in the company of those who were less fortunate than he was. I want you to take note of five things about this, just, just uh, characteristics of what he did. First of all, it was spontaneous, not the result <clears throat> of compulsion of any kind. <clears throat> it was spontaneous. Secondly, it was altruistic. Oh, that's a great word, isn't it? It just means a concern for others. It was out of a concern for others, out of genuine concern for others and their need. Thirdly, it was motivated by love. It was motivated by love. That's what was in his heart, and that's what came out uh, in uh, terms of this practical deed. Fourthly, it was wholehearted. He gave the whole lot. 
um, to uh, help the poor. And fifthly, as we've mentioned before, it was in harmony with the spirit and the attitude and the actions of the church as a whole. You need to keep those five things in mind as we then come to look at Ananias and Sapphira. It was spontaneous. It was altruistic concern for others. It was motivated by love. It was wholehearted. And it was harmony with the spirit and the attitude and actions of the church as a whole. Now we have this stark contrast. And it is a stark contrast. And it's a scary contrast. But, but, We read through the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We're faced with an altogether different scenario. They were obviously among the believers. Now, whether they were true believers or not is still a matter of debate amongst scholars. But it doesn't really matter. The lessons that are here uh, don't depend, or, or, or if you like, the application of the lessons Uh, And the truth of the lessons don't depend on on your decision about that. They were among the believers. And and they were presumably happy to be identified with them. And they too sold land. And they brought the money to the disciples for distribution to the needy. Now, the deed in itself was a good one. It was a kind one. It was even a generous one. But the Holy Spirit then takes us beneath the surface to the heart attitudes of this couple. And what you discover then is something very different. First of all, what they did was premeditated. Verse 2. And with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Look at verse 4 where it talks, Peter asks the question, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? So this was not spontaneous. This was premeditated. Secondly, it was self-seeking and self-promoting. What were they after here? Well, as we'll see in a moment again, we'll come back to this. They wanted a a reputation amongst the believers and amongst the church, but they didn't want to pay the price of that. And so thirdly, it was motivated not by love, but by a desire for prominence in the church fellowship. And fourthly, it was given with a divided heart, not wholeheartedly like Barnabas, but with a divided heart. Some for them, some for me. And it was in conflict with the prevailing spirit in the church. So the five things we said about Barnabas are contrasted directly with these five things we can say about Ananias and Sapphira. And so the goodness of the deed, the goodness of the deed in itself, was spoiled and destroyed by the hidden desires of their hearts. And I want to suggest to you that this is a very challenging, consistent theme in the Scriptures. That as a man thinks in his heart, 
so is he. Somebody said it like this. A man isn't what he thinks he is, but what he thinks he is. What he thinks he is. Jesus addressed this matter in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, where he talked about inward anger being the root of murder. We talked about inward lust being the, the root of adultery and so forth. And Jesus was pointing out what we're seeing here again, that our battle is essentially with the inner man. That the, if you like, the, the sharpest battle is with our thoughts and our attitudes and our motives and our values. We can so easily do things, if you like, on the outside. And they can appear uh, so nice and so good and so rich and so wholesome to others. But I wonder if we dig beneath the surface what our motives and our attitudes are. Now, maybe some of you listening today who are still caught in, the, in this concept of rule-keeping religion, that you think you can get to heaven or you can please God by the keeping of rules or the keeping of laws or the doing of your own deeds and so forth. And I suggest to you that right here, that kind of thinking founders. It founders on the rock of our inner attitudes, our inner values, our inner motives, our inner thoughts. The Pharisees were great rule keepers, but their hearts were far from God. The heart and its condition must come first. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think there are rules and principles which we must obey and we ought to obey. Christ said he didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And as we live according to the law of Christ, we will then fulfill these obligations and these conditions. But the heart and the heart condition must come first. And this is the difference between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas's heart was right, the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira were not. So Barnabas's action was the result of his living faith. And what was wrong with Ananias and Sapphira was not their action, but that their action came from hearts that were wrong. Now, how is your heart this morning? How is your heart this morning? Whatever picture you're painting on the outside and I say it to myself as well. Whatever picture we paint on the outside, how are our hearts? What is our heart condition before God? Some perhaps are keeping the rules, but their hearts are closed to God's grace. Perhaps believers painting a picture outside, but their hearts cold and astray from the Savior. And so we too must search our hearts. We can so easily slip back into a barren, mechanical practice of religion rather than a living, growing faith. And so it's incumbent upon us, I think, often to search our hearts and to pray for the continuing, sanctifying work of the Spirit upon our inner lives. Let me suggest three things, and I'll deal with these very briefly. 
I want you to see evil conceived. This tragic episode starts with this, evil conceived. With his wife's knowledge and by implication with her agreement also, Ananias laid his plans. Here's what John Stott says, very interesting. He comments, they wanted the credit and prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. That's a very descriptive phrase and a very challenging phrase. It was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. Whether they were believers or not, Ananias and Sapphira, the lessons for us are serious and deeply challenging. Our immediate reaction is to conclude that they weren't believers, but imposters or frauds, pretenders. How could believers do this? Yet, do we not see at times in our own hearts the tendency towards these things? How pride and self-seeking can lurk in the corners of our hearts? How the occasional shortcut presents itself in our dealings? How we can sometimes refrain from telling the whole truth, which is tantamount to deceit. So, evil conceived. Secondly, see the attempt to deceive. Now, Ananias planned to deceive, as he thought, the apostles and the church. They brought only a part, that's what the scriptures say, only a part, having plotted to keep back part of the proceeds for themselves. Now, the Greek term that's used here, the Greek term that's used here actually means to steal. It's used of Achan's theft in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament uh, story. And F.F. Bruce points out an interesting parallel between Achan and this incident. He says, in both narratives, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. And it may be that Luke wants to draw that parallel. You see, Peter points out here that what uh, was done was immeasurably more than deceiving men. That what Ananias and Sapphira attempted to do was not merely to deceive men or the church. Why has Satan put it in your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? How foolish we are to imagine that the wrong we do has only human, this world implications, and that we can hide, that what we can hide from men is also hidden from God. Nothing hidden from him. So evil is conceived. There's the attempt to deceive. And there's the judgment received. And what a scary judgment it is. The sentence that was passed here was not by any human counsel or judge. It wasn't even initiated by human words. There's no judgment per se from the lips of Peter upon either Ananias and Sapphira, but simply a relaying of what God was doing. 
The disciplining rod is applied directly here by God upon both Ananias and then Sapphira. And what happened to them was actually beyond the control of men. It was God acting in chastisement for the purity of the infant church. Now, Scriptures say if God should mark iniquity, who can stand? And the truth is none of us could. And in His mercy, God does not deal with men and women often like this. But here, if you like, at the very birth of the New Testament church, if we may put it like this, a very human way, God was setting down a marker. God was setting down a marker as to how the church should live and how their inner lives ought to be um, free of deceit and free of wrongdoing. That, they, that if you like, they, the, the foundation of their, their wholeness in Christ ought to be a heart that was right, inner attitudes and motives that were right. Well, it was as a result of the charge led, you have not lied to man but to God, but that the judgment fell. As believers, we need to be reminded that God will bring our deeds to account one day. And though for us as believers there's no possibility of condemnation, there is the reminder in Scripture that holiness and righteousness in our lives is necessary. That God would discourage any carelessness in our living and that He will bring that carelessness to account. Unbelievers, those of you who are listening today and are not in Christ, you need to tremble before a God from whom nothing is concealed. He who knows the hearts passes righteous judgment upon men and women. And the need to prepare for that day of judgment is essential and urgent. You know, you might perhaps be inclined to leave that story there and perhaps be slightly depressed or discouraged by it. But before we leave it this morning, I want you to show you the outcome. And we see that outcome in verses 12 and following where we read that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Look down that little passage, and what you'll discover is this. First of all, it cemented the fellowship of the believers. It brought them together in a tightened bond. They were all together in Solomon's portico. Secondly, it warned off superficial or casual believers. Notice that. None of the rest dared join them. None of the rest dared join them. There was no possibility of easy believism here. The unbelievers, as they looked on, they said, there are serious matters here. We don't enter here without a sense of, of seriousness and commitment. So the result is it cemented the fellowship of the believers. It warned off superficial or casual followers it reinforced the honorable witness of the church. You see what it says there? It says that the people held them in high esteem. The people held them in high esteem. Now, they might have been 
afraid. They might have been scared. They might have been awed by what happened, but they held the believers in high esteem. And of course, verse 14, the fourth thing, says that the church grew larger and larger. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord in multitudes of both men and women. What an instructive account we have here of Ananias and Sapphira. Tremendous challenge, I think, for those of us who are believers to act out of hearts that are open to God, that are, that are characterized by integrity and honesty in all that we do, and that we come to God often and search our hearts before Him and confess our wrongdoing and ask Him to remove those wrong motives and those wrong desires and those wrong attitudes and to keep our hearts pure and holy. And what a warning to those who would try to lie to God, to those who would shun Jesus Christ, to those who would cling to their own way of salvation and turn their back upon God. May the Lord speak to us continually through this story and remind us again and again that He is the God of holiness and righteousness and that what He looks for us, what He looks for in us, His children, is a mirror image of His Son um, in whom there was no fault or flaw or wrong attitude or wrong value. God help us to be Christ-like in our living.